Two of your three novels, Eastern Standard Tribe and The Last One, are set in our time. Why do they say that you're a sci-fi writer? Well, most recent novel isn't a science fiction novel, it's a fantasy novel. Mm -hmm. The science fiction that I write, though, uh, uh, Eastern Standard Tribe and, and other contemporary pieces that I've written, are science fictional in that they treat with science fiction themes. They talk about how the present is being altered by technology, which is really what science fiction is about. Um, a science fiction editor named Gardner Dozois very famously once said that the job of a science fiction writer is to consider the movie theater and the automobile and invent the drive-in. And that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to do with my technological speculation in near future setting. Why are you interested in technology? Do you have some technological background? Well, I was, I was raised in a very technological household. My, uh, my father was a computer programmer in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, we had computers around the house when I was growing up in the 1970s, uh, very early terminals connected to mainframes at, at distant universities. And so I've been playing with computers all my life. So technology is something that very much interests me. But I'd say that, in, in general, my interest in technology is the science fiction writer's interest. It's not the interest in the engineering. It's the interest in the social impact of the way that technology changes our lives. How, in your opinion, does technology change our life? Does it change the core of human beings? Sure, of course it does. So take, for example, the way that we understand the world around us on a macro and a micro level. On a micro level, on a day-to-day -day level, the way that we understand the world around us is by telling stories about it. Right? We, we make up a little story for ourselves in which we're the hero, in which we get out of bed and we brush our teeth and we get on the tube and we go to work and then we, we sit down at our desks and so on. And it's a, it's a little narrative and it echoes the narrative conventions of the world around us, of the stories that are professionally prepared for us, the, the, um, the movies, the books, the plays, and so on. You look at the kinds of stories that people told when there wasn't much technology and hence not much understanding of the way that the world worked. Or look at the Greek plays, for example. A common way for a Greek play to end was with what's called a, a deus ex machina, or God in the machine. And literally, the, what would happen is the end of the play would come, the playwright would run out of energy or the time would be up and they would have a god in a, come out of a box and say, as God, I resolve all of your problems. And that reflected, I think, the worldview of the Greeks, which was one in which, because they didn't understand the physical factors, the technological and scientific factors at work in their world, they had a belief that the world around them was largely governed by sort of capricious spirits, that it wasn't known or knowable. Um, and as a result, their understanding of everything from what it meant to get up in the morning and get out of bed to what it meant to um, fall in love and, and bear children, all of that was colored by an absence of understanding of the world itself because there was, a, there was a kind of belief in the fates that I think we've largely lost as a result of our better understanding of the world around us, which is directly related to our technology. Do you think that most people really understand the world around us? Maybe they just believe in technology like in the past they believed in God? I think that everyone has an understanding of the world that's informed by technology. Otherwise, we'd still have stories that ended with, and then the gods came down and, and rearranged everything and made it better. The fact that our stories these days, the, the movies and the novels and the plays that we see, all end with some kind of human resolution tells us a lot about our technological moment. We, for example, understand what shape the world is and which direction it moves. We understand what the moon is and how high the sky is. We understand where animals come from. We don't believe anymore, for example, that leaves spontaneously turn into fishes, as they did in the Dark Ages. We understand that fishes come from fish eggs. 
and that fish eggs come from fish. So all of these things, which are knowable only through observation and technology, only through the scientific method and the apparatus that are used to do science, these observations have actually changed, I believe, our cognition. They've changed how we understand the world and ourselves. How does technology influence not individuals, but society as a whole? Well, we can see this at different stages of technological development. Societies have been built around what technology could and couldn't do and how technology made you understand the world around you. So, for example, during the Industrial Age, the Industrial Revolution, there was, on the one hand, um, a belief in mechanism, a belief that, that you could build a machine and that if, you, if the gears were fine enough and well enough engineered and laid out cunningly enough, it could accomplish anything. And that by the same token, you could build a society in this way. And you had both Keynes and Marx writing about societies that were essentially run in a, as a machine, as a deterministic machine, where people would make decisions about what inputs you put into it, and that they would be able to figure out, based on those inputs, what outputs would come from it. And today, we have a much more sort of anarchistic understanding, I think, that's largely informed by chaotic dynamics and by, by the chaotic uh, development of technology around us, in particular by the way that the chaotic internet works. Where do you think that technology, internet, uh, all these networks lead us? What is your vision of society in 20 or 50 years? I think that one of the biggest changes that we're looking at is a change from a world where the, where the um, great gap between people is where they're born or what class they live in, the, the traditional Marxist or capitalist view of, of the world, where, where wealth is the thing that determines your quality of life, to the determinant of your quality of life being when you were born, how far along in technology you were born. I think that our quality of lives are increasingly being tied directly to our information science in particular. So take, for example, a notional technology whereby before a baby is born, parents submit uh, a sample of their zygotes, of their sperm and eggs, to a lab that analyzes them to find the ones that have the fewest known defects, right? Um, heart disease, cancer, schizophrenia, what have you. Anything that is believed to be congenital, if they can locate the gene um, and if it's present in a zygote, that zygote is thrown on the floor. And the, and the remainder are left and, and combined. And so what you end up with is babies that are born with far fewer, with a far more robust genetic heritage than their parents. So we can see how that would work and how it would yield a generation that would in many ways have a higher quality of life than its parents' generation. You'd live longer, your teeth would probably be better, you wouldn't be as prone to heart disease, you wouldn't be as prone to obesity, mental illness, and so on. But then imagine that 20 years down the road, imagine how many more defects we know about. Imagine how much more we understand the genome. This isn't about genetic engineering at all. This isn't about saying, we'll change your DNA. This is just about selection, right? In the course of one generation, one human generation, 20 or 25 years, we will go through dozens of computer generations, and the amount of, of processing power we'll be able to bring to bear on the genome to understand more and more about which genes do what means that 25 years after your children are born, when they're ready to have their children, the process by which their children are selected will have so much more sophistication and so much more subtlety that their children will have the potential of living much longer and much healthier lives than they do. And as a result, what year you're born in becomes a much bigger determinant of your quality of life than how much money you have or what part of the world you're born in. Because in the main, these technologies are fairly cheap to bring. We can imagine these technologies being brought to countries all over the world 
even where um, the uh, quality of life and the economy are very poor developing nations and emerging economies, because the, the process of merely selecting sex cells and then doing in vitro fertilization is one that is comparatively cheap as compared to, for example, the process of fighting cancers that may occur later in life um, if you fail to um, adequately screen for them at the, uh, in, at the prenatal preconception point. So really, you know, the gaps that we're accustomed to thinking about in technology between the rich and the poor nations will, I think, largely vanish down this hole of the gaps between the rich and the poor generations. How is it going to affect the way society works? Do you think that uh, older generations will be outcasts? It seems to me that we are heading to a change in the rules. 200 years ago, when you were old, you were everything, and when we were young, you were nothing. And now it looks like vice versa. Well, 200 years ago, if you were old, you were probably dead. I mean, increase in lifespan mm -hmm. in technologically capable nations over the last 200 years has been remarkable. So I'd say that in general, the lot of the elderly are, has been quite improved by this, in particular in, de in developed nations where you have an aging cohort, one of the things that politicians are starting to realize and cater to is the power of the voting bloc of elderly people. In the U.S. and in the U.K. and Canada, you have uh, regulators and politicians who are ready to make policy that benefits the elderly at the expense of the young in many instances because of the power that they, have to, that they can bring to bear. Uh, if you look at the AARP in America, it's one of the most powerful uh, lobbying organizations in the world. That's the American Association of Retired Persons, which is essentially the senior citizens' lobby. Yes, uh, but I've heard that in Japan, for example, in the 60s and 70s, when young people all of a sudden became more healthy because they started to eat more meat and more vegetables, and they also became more educated and became successful managers. There was a huge number of suicides in the old generation because they suddenly saw themselves uh, drop down from a high position in society to quite a moderate one. Well, I think that there's certainly quite a capacity for terrible future shock. Although one of the things that I think we're going to see that's going to be very different in demographics in the future than we're experiencing today is that um, generations, new cohorts will be smaller and not larger. There's a general trend in technologically advanced developed nations that each generation is smaller than the one that precedes it, not larger. So it, it may be that, that it's not the... Um, the world around you, that you know, the majority of the people around you who are enjoying the advance of technology, but rather a small minority of the people around you who are enjoying this advance in technology. But nevertheless, I do think that there'll be a lot of culture shock, future shock, and that that future shock will be grounded in things like, in every field of endeavor, uh, the technological assist that will both be uh, prenatal and uh, preconception and also developmental as, as children grow will allow them to do things that will dwarf the accomplishments of their parents. I mean, one of the things, just as a simple example, if you're an athlete and your children are athletes and you have the ability to take advantage of these processes, these selection processes and, and advanced training mechanisms and so on, it's likely that the accomplishments of your children in uh, athletic endeavor will be things that were considered impossible when you were competing. So if you look at, for example, I have a, my uh, grandmother's boyfriend was a bodybuilder in the 1950s. And the uh, bulk of bodybuilders today and the, the way that bodybuilders compete today is so far in advance of anything that was considered possible when he competed that it, it's as though they were participating in different sports. Don't you think that uh, genetic modifications 
that uh, no modifications. No, no, no modifications. Uh -huh. Selection. Okay, selection. But if we can do selection, then in 10 or 15 years we can do modification, I think. Doesn't it give parents terrible power over their children? Well, in general, I actually think that genetic modification is probably going to prove itself untenable over one or two generations, largely on the, uh, again, on the basis that technology improves so rapidly. So imagine um, if we had a you know, today's genetic mo modification technology is fledgling. It's, it's the equivalent of the Apple II Plus era, you know, 19, late 1970s when the first personal computers were appearing. And you said, all right, I'm going to create a, um, I'm going to see to it that my child is a super baby and I will um, give her the benefit of the modern Apple II Plus level technology. Well, 20 years later, your kid is saddled with Apple II Plus level technology while around her, there's a generation being born that has Pentium 3 technology, mm -hmm. right, dual-core Pentium 3 technology. Well, that's not going to, you, you won't be super for long. Um, I have a colleague named Bruce Sterling, who's a science fiction writer, who's a very good writer and very good thinker on these subjects, and he actually thinks that it's more likely that what we'll do is genetically modify fast-lived organisms like um, uh, bacteria, mm -hmm. which are far more appropriate for candidates for genetic modification, and that, that bacteria will, will exist symbiotically in our bodies you know, and we'll replace the bacteria in our bodies that aids with our digestion, aids with our metabolism, aids with our cognition, aids with our respiration, aids with our muscles, and so on, all these different things that symbiotes do today in our bodies. We'll, we'll flush them out and replace them with subsequent generations of them as the technology advances, which means that you won't make those kinds of irreversible decisions at the germline level, right? Because, of course, one of the real dangers of modifying your genome or your child's genome is that you not only modify your child's genome, but potentially if you modify the germline, you modify the genome of your children's children and their children too. Yes, uh, but what I'm talking about is not uh, that one generation is better than the previous one. I'm saying that if your parents can choose your abilities, eye color, everything that you are, doesn't it? Well, if, t if DNA worked that way, I think there'd be a danger. I don't think that that's how, how the genome works, for starters. I, I don't think that there is that level of granularity in your genome. But moreover, the, the point that I'm making still holds, right? The success of their selection mm -hmm. will hinge on technology, right? Will hinge on the sophistication of their technology. And, what that, and if the intention is to create a hyper-competitive super baby, that super baby won't be very hyper-competitive in 10 or 15 years. Yeah, but it's already in five. Yes, uh, but the baby will be affected by its parents' choice. Right. Well, yes, yeah, sure, but I'm saying that parents who do this, mm -hmm. yeah. if parents do this with the hopes of making super babies, mm -hmm. they'll fail, mm -hmm. which means that it, while, while there may be some vogue or fashion to do it at some point, I don't think it will become a mainstream practice because the people who do it will fail, mm -hmm. right? They'll fail at their stated goal that their children will, in fact, not be super babies and hyper competitive as they age, but they'll trail their cohort as they age. And moreover, it'll terminate their germline, right? Their children will, will have the same failures as their parents because they will be um, using technology that's locked in instead of technology that can be cycled out as our understanding of the world improves. I'd like to discuss the respect points that you uh, used instead of money in your first novel. Did you think of it as a good substitute for money when you wrote that novel? And what do you think about it now? I think that reputation economies have their pluses and minuses. I think that the pluses are pretty visible. 
reputation economies are a pretty good way of managing resources that aren't scarce, like attention, right? Where where or aren't scarce in the traditional sense of things like you know chairs and and apples and and houses. When you need to regulate things like um, which web page should I look at, or what music should I listen to, or what book should I read, and where the web page, the book, and the attention that you're going to give to it, in far more renewable resources than chairs, tables, beds, and houses, then reputation economies are pretty good ways of of directing people's behavior, of saying, you know, well, maybe I'll get a recommendation from a friend about what I shouldn't do. And then the conceit of the novel, of the Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, my first novel is that there's a world that's characterized by goods that aren't scarce in the same way that music and movies and books aren't scarce, that physical goods can be infinitely reproduced at, at zero marginal cost. And so it was kind of a parable about the Napster era, the era in which... It's a kind of communism, essentially. Well, no, so communism is about a world in which the economy is capable of producing a surplus. We were taught in schools that communism is everybody does what she can and gets what she needs. The critical difference mm-hmm. here is you don't have to do what you can. Mm-hmm. The critical difference here is that is the world that I imagined is one in which there's a surplus of goods without any effort at all. Mm-hmm. But there is no need to apportion labor because technology has taken over from all labor. And it was a parable, right? It wasn't intended to be extrapolative. It was intended to be a kind of fable about what that kind of non-scarce economics might look like. It's different from Marxism and different from Keynesian economics in that it's supposed to consider what a world in which the uh, most important goods in circulation in the economy that are capable of renewing themselves without any human intervention, what that world would be like and how you'd manage that world. Because in, in both the communist and capitalist or Marxist view of the world, in both of those views, You need a mechanism by which uh, human labor can be leveraged to produce more goods. And in this conception, in, in this parable, in this fable, that, that wasn't required. But I wanted to get back to reputation economies mm-hmm. and what, what's wrong with them. So what, that's what's good about them. What's bad about them, I think, is that they're powerfully normative. I think that a democracy is a society that celebrates and protects minority points of view, points of view that are unpopular. Uh, that, that's the hallmark perhaps, of how free a society is, is how widely unpopular and anti-dogmatic or, or heretical beliefs are allowed to spread, because I think that that diversity gives you your strength. The problem with reputation economies is, like capitalist economies, people who do popular things or people who are, in, who are already rich in some sense are given more opportunities to get rich, and people who are poor are given very few opportunities to get rich except by aping the rich, except by doing what the rich do. So you see in, in my novel, there's a moment at which a character um, breaks from the orthodoxy of his peers. And as a result, he loses all influence over them and over the world around him. Right? So I think that that's really dangerous. I, I wouldn't want to live in a society where minority points of view were treated in that way because I think ultimately that's uh, death for free expression and for uh, the society itself. What I was thinking about uh, while reading it is that the reputation economy is an essential part of our society right now. We are lucky to have the money economy because it gives us an alternative. If you have money and you don't have a reputation, you can do something. If you have a reputation and you don't have money, you can do something too. But if you take one part out, it becomes so hierarchical, you won't have another way to do things. I actually think it's in the main, at least in, in, 
industrialized nations. It's very hard to develop material wealth without developing reputational wealth as well. Mm-hmm. That, that most people who have one have the other, and that one follows from the other. In general, people who are famous have lots of opportunities to get rich. People who are rich have lots of opportunities to get famous. In each of your novels, you write about some free things. Things people do without getting any money, just because they like to do it. The things that grow up on the outskirts of society and then envelop the society as a whole. The Wi-Fi networks you are writing about, the open source software, file sharing. Do you think it can replace the economic structure we have now? No, I think it's a critical piece of the, of the economic structure we have now. I think that the commodification, certain kinds of knowledge and certain knowledge goods, is critical to, an econ- to a healthy economy. I think that if uh, there are monopolies over certain pieces of critical infrastructure, for example, say that um, only one entity is allowed to authorize the creation and installation of plumbing or electrical wires, and uh, that commercial entity can exclude its competitors and can stop people from improving on it, then I think that society stagnates. And I think that what the open source and open culture movements are about is building a commodity substrate on which many businesses will be built. You might have noticed that, that the GNU Linux operating system or the Apache web browser or any of the other more successful open and free source, software, open source and free software projects have enormous amounts of contribution from commercial entities who see, dec- who see commodifying the infrastructure, the plumbing of the internet, of the network, of the, of the operating system and so on as a critical piece of building their businesses on top of it. Yes, uh, but don't you think that all that open source stuff is going to change society in some major way? Like the Industrial Revolution changed our world from feudalism to capitalism? Sure, I think so. I think that the, um, the outcome, a world of free infrastructure, is going to be one that, um, in which entities are more competitive but also smaller. I think that it's going to be a lot harder to sustain gigantic businesses on the back of commodity material, but that it will be much easier to sustain competitive small businesses that change very frequently on the back of this. This is the novel that I'm working on right now. is about a world in which large companies fail, but small entrepreneurial teams of two or three people who change their business every six to eight weeks, wildly successful. Do you think it can change the political system somehow? I think it's already happening. You have uh, completely new forms of civic engagement. In Korea, in the most recent elections, Dark Horse in, in South Korea, a, a Dark Horse candidate that no one really had given any thought to was elected after an open source newspaper reported exhaustively on what he was doing and what his, um, what his opponents had done, um, and where citizen journalists gathered and reported on this material. Kenya recently had what are considered to be its first ever honest elections because the um, uh, scrutineers of the ballot boxes followed the ballot boxes from the polling places to the, to the counting houses with mobile phones and where they found irregularities. I read about it in your last novel. That's right. They, they talked about this. So over and over again, I think we're seeing the nature of democracy changing too. One of the things that's happened to democratic societies is that they've been, become increasingly dominated by power blocks that represent very large moneyed interests. So where you have, for example, one of, the, one of the truisms that I think a lot of economists believe is that industries that are least competitive are the, are the best at lobbying. You know, if you come from a very competitive industry um, and you stop competing to send someone off to Brussels or Washington or London to uh, beg for some special favors from government, 
while you're there, your competitors come along and, and clean you out, right? They, they put you out of business while you're wasting your time in, in government. But when you get down to a non-competitive industry like the music industry where you've only got three or four companies left, you can all come to a kind of gentle monopolist agreement in which you say, okay, well, we're going to go together to Washington and to Brussels and beg for special privilege. And we'll, while we're there, we're not going to attack each other. We're going to, we're going to work in harmony. We'll cooperate with one another. Well, I think that the um, reinvigoration of entrepreneurial, hyper-competitive marketplaces with lots and lots of very small companies makes it much harder for that kind of lobbying to take place. What you end up with instead is a much more fragmented political landscape, which in general I think is better. It means that there's less power being wielded by one or two companies, and the power is instead more distributed and decentralized, which I think gives better public policy outcomes. But now we are seeing the other trend too. Big companies emerging and acquiring each other, and we have lessened uh, few and fewer big companies in the world, but they are beginning bigger. Yeah, but those big companies are also being destroyed, right, by their customers, by changing economies, and by changing technology. The pharmaceutical industry is having a terrible problem right now in that um, its entire business model, mm -hmm. uh, the pharmaceutical industry's entire business model is built on exclusive rights regimes for pharma that the developing world isn't interested in sustaining. Right? So you have South Africa and Brazil and India all talking about producing pharmaceuticals under compulsory license or without a license at all in order to, um, for example, provide low-cost AIDS drugs to their population. And pharmaceutical industry says, well, if the, the way that the globalization has worked, the way the technology works, if you produce low-cost AIDS drugs in India, they will surely be exported back to the developed world where we make all of our money sold on the gray market, and when they're sold on the gray market there, people will stop paying retail for it and will go out of business. Well, you know, some of that is an artifact just of how big and unwieldy these, these companies are and how incapable they are of adjusting to change. And I don't need to tell you how the music industry and the film industry have completely failed to adapt to change. I mean, their idea of adapting to change is suing tens of thousands of their customers for file sharing. I don't understand what they're thinking, right? Like, what's the outcome? How many customers do you have to sue? before they'll start going back to the mall? I think the answer is, you know, they won't, right? You, you can't sue customers into compliance, right? It just doesn't work that way. I mean, you can bankrupt them. What do you do after you've bankrupted your customers? Where do they, you know, how does, that, how does that translate into a sustainable business? So yeah, these companies are big and unwieldy and gigantic, and they wield terrible power in the halls of government at the United Nations World Intellectual Property Organization, in Brussels, in Washington, in Ottawa, and so on. But they're also their own doom because they're so slow-moving, they're so plodding, they're so incapable of adjusting to change and absorbing change that nimbler entrepreneurial ent entities that are three guys in a garage are destroying them over and over again. You look at Napster, it was created by a 17-year-old university. As I understand, you are basically pro-piracy. No. No? No, I'm pro-changes in copyright law. Uh, my feeling is that, um, first of all, that it was an accident that copyright law, which regulates the making of copies, has come to bear on what didn't used to be an activity that required making a copy, which is reading stuff, loaning stuff, and sharing stuff. So before copyrighted works were on the Internet, if you read something, shared something, bought something, sold something, loaned it out, played with it, uh, all of those activities didn't really involve making a copy, and, and none of them fell under the purview of copyright law. Activities between average individuals were just not within the purview of copyright law. They were in unregulated space.
and that it's simply because every one of those actions, when undertaken with a computer, involves the making of copies, that copyright law has suddenly come to regulate the lives of millions of individuals, in fact, the majority of Internet users who are now engaged in file sharing. And I don't think that the answer to this is to say to all of these people, you must absorb and obey a set of laws that were written uh, with the intention that they would be interpreted by giant rights holder companies with copyright lawyers in them, and that you need to understand this before your kid can uh, listen to music or make a school project. You need to do this before you can loan a book or a song to a friend. You need to go out and, and essentially become a copyright lawyer before you can do this. I think instead what we need to do is change the copyright law so that it doesn't, so that once again, it leaves alone what private individuals do among themselves. How should we change it? Well, there are a bunch of things that we can do. One is we could just exempt non-commercial activity from copyright law. We could just say, look, anything that's done by two private individuals, two or more private individuals between themselves, just doesn't fall into the bailiwick of copyright law. We could, if we feel that that isn't enough and that that might allow um, too much file sharing to go on without compensation to artists, we could change the copyright law so that it offered a blanket license to average individuals. So radio stations like this one and um, people who make uh, phonograms, who make records, people who have jukeboxes and so on, all benefit from what are called blanket licenses where after they pay a fixed fee, they're given the right to access and use as much music as they want um, from any source. And then that fixed fee is collected by a collecting society and paid out to artists. Okay. Well, we have 70 million file sharers in America, right? Suing them doesn't seem to be putting any money in an artist's pocket. A substantial number of them have indicated that they would be happy to pay if there was some mechanism to pay for it for the activities that they're going on that they would love to see that artists are compensated. Why don't we offer them the same deal that we offer to radio stations, to live performance venues, to cable TV operators, and many other entities? But as I understand, that's how things work right now. People pay money and then copyright associations redistribute it to artists whose songs are played on the radio, depending on how much, how many people listen to them. So if you are listening to an indie guy who doesn't have many listeners, your money goes to Michael Jackson instead. Well, so are and have been instances where collecting societies did a poor job of monitoring what was being listened to and of dispersing those funds, but that doesn't mean that the idea of a collecting society is flawed. Um, what it means is that collecting societies need to have better methodologies. Uh, the International M uh, Music Managers Federation, which represents a lot of individual artists, small artists, indie artists, has published a white paper on the uh, characteristics that they see of a 21st century collecting society, how it should operate in order to see to it that things are fair. One of the things that, about the Internet is that it's much better at counting things and accounting for things than all the technologies that preceded it. Yes, but uh, history of the 20th century, as it seems to me, shows that uh, central redistribution just doesn't work. It can be fair and it can be effective. Well, I, you know, my feeling is that it's imperfect, wildly imperfect perhaps, but it's so much better than the alternative, which is either not compensating anyone or suing everyone, that mm -hmm. I think that it's at least worst. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly to say that it doesn't work is, is, is factually incorrect. We have radio, right? We have live performance. We have covers and phonograms. We have jukeboxes. We have cable television. We have lending libraries. None of these things would exist if we didn't have blanket licenses. So of course it works. What do you think of uh, voluntary donations? 
if I'm listening to some guy and want to send him 10 bucks or a thousand bucks, uh, wouldn't it work? Well, you could try it. I, my thing is that Donationware had some limited successes and lots of failures. For me, as an artist and the uh, artistic endeavors that I undertake, I actually much would prefer much not to not have that kind of relationship with my audience because one of the things that I find most disturbing about the relationship I have with my audience now is that occasionally I get emails from people who say, you know, I went out and I bought your book and I thought that you wrote it the wrong way and I demand that from now on you write it this, different, this other different way. And my answer to them is, you had a commercial arrangement with my publisher. I'm responsible for delivering to my publisher the books that my publisher wishes to publish. Your relationship is with my, with my publisher and if you don't like the services my publishers are offering, then you need to take it up with them, but not with me. You publish your books on the internet for free. How did your publisher agree to it? Um, it seemed like a good idea to them in the same way that it seemed like a good idea to me. We both agreed that in the short term, at least right now, the distribution of books on the internet for free simultaneous with their release in, uh, as physical objects available for sale in, in bookshops just drives more sales. The biggest threat that authors face isn't piracy, it's obscurity. This is a quote from a, a technical publisher named Tim O'Reilly. You know, 99% of the people who might buy my book won't buy it because they've never heard of it, not because they were offered a copy for free uh, and that's substituted for the commercial venture. So a little 1% of people who both heard of my book and are willing to buy it, if a few of them say, ah, oh, well, now that I've got it for free, I don't need to, that's more than offset by all the, the potential buyers for my book who find out about it because it's available for free, because their friends can loan them a copy without giving up their own, can put it on a mailing list, can paste it into a chat, and so on. Are there any other popular writers who do the same? Sure. Uh, I have a colleague named Charlie Strauss, Charles Strauss, who just won the Hugo Award this year for a story that was released under a Creative Commons license. About you being Russian, you have Russian grandparents? My father, uh, well, my father was born in Azerbaijan to Russian parents. He was a war refugee, and my mother's grandparents are Russian. Do you feel some connection to Russia? I think so, yeah. I mean, I grew up, my grandmother is Russian my, and, and speaks Russian. Uh, I grew up, you know, uh, with uh, in, in a fairly Russianized household, visiting family in Petersburg, well, in Leningrad then, now in Petersburg, and, and having that family come and visit me. So, yeah, I feel a connection to Russia. I've been a couple of times. I was there when it was Leningrad, and I was there when it was Petersburg. How do you find it? I found it, frankly, frightening. I think that Petersburg is a, a place with real deep problems. It has amazing potential, it's beautiful, the people are friendly and wonderful, but I found so many places where it seemed like things were breaking down, and breaking down really terribly, and where, where in particular where social order and the rule of law really seemed to be challenged. For example, the, the visa process to get into the country was ridiculous and seemed entirely as a, a, a mechanism to uh, create a bureaucratic layer between travelers who want to come into the country and the, the people who they would visit when they get there. It cost me 170 pounds to get a visa to enter Russia. A friend of mine, who is Australian and went to Russia to teach English, says that if Russia had a tourist slogan, it would be Russia, always a problem. Oh yeah, sure. I, I mean, there was just a lot of it. And it seems like uh, this was at the micro layer and the macro layer. There were things that seemed to be government policies that were very complicated, and then there were things that seemed to be individual policies that made life very complicated as well. I, I think in many ways it's better than under the Soviet era, but I see that the personal fortunes of my family are in some ways worse than they were in the Soviet era.
my great-grandmother, who, who died recently, certainly um, lived a much better life in the Soviet era than she has in the post-Soviet era. Do you see some dynamics? Is it getting better or worse? I don't know, you know. I don't have enough data points. Uh, it seems sometimes like it's getting better and sometimes like it's getting worse. But, my, you know, my great-uncle in Petersburg had a, a shop, a dry-cleaning shop. And one day they got a phone call that basically went, this is the mafia, we like your location, don't ever come to it again, it's ours now. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of their shot. You know, that just seems to me to be indicative of a, of a country that will, that will uh, for so long as that obtains, that kind of country can never successfully industrialize. And I don't know how you address it either. So you don't have the fascination with Russia as a cyberpunk society as William Gibson has? Uh, maybe a little. I certainly, um, I'm working on a, on a novella right now in my spare time when I'm not working on the novel about it's a modern retelling of the Siege of Leningrad, which my grandmother and my uncles and aunts lived through. And, uh, was, you know, my grandmother was in the brigades in the Siege of Leningrad and, and you know, digging trenches and, and uh, hauling corpses and the rest of it. She was a 13-year-old girl at the time. And so I, I'm, I'm writing a story about that. Do you speak some Russian? 15 or 20 words. Okay. I speak with my family in Russia, I speak Yiddish. So there are some people in Russia who still speak Yiddish? I thought that everyone who did moved out. I actually remember, it was very funny, in 1984 when I was in Leningrad, we went and saw the Russian circus and the clowns, they did all their routines in Yiddish. <laughs> my mother's grandparents were, were clowns in the Russian circus. Her grandparents, my mother's grandparents, yeah. Are there plans to publish your novels in Russia? I'd love to have a Russian publisher approach me for this, but so far none have. There has been, uh, in, in, there's a magazine there called If, I don't know what it's called in Russian, that's published some of my stories. In Russian it's Yesli. As I understand, everybody in Russia can take a novel and publish it and uh, collect money. Yeah, make their own commercial editions. Mm-hmm. I mean, Russia's per capita GDP, as I understand it, is in the $250 per capita per month range. I just don't I don't see myself receiving an appreciable sum of money from Russia through commercial sales of my novels. I mean, I have friends of mine who I've talked to whose, whose books are published in Russia say that they don't get a lot of money from it. And for me, it's more important that there be an audience for my work in Russia. Maybe I'll get a paid speaking gig or paid translation gigs or you know, opportunities to write or, or so on in Russia, or maybe Russians who then leave Russia and travel abroad and, and make money in the Western world will will become customers of mine either in English or in Russian. So for me it's, you know, the scooping up money from, from Russian publishers for the printing of my books, I don't understand the point of it. So you encourage everybody to go and publish it? Yeah, anyone who lives in a country that's not on the World Bank's list of high income nations can make it commercial editions of my books, provided that they don't export them back to a high income nation. It seems that you have something with the letter D. Almost all heroes in your novels have names starting with D. Dan, David, Debra. Um, no, no, it's just this random coincidence. I choose my names. I have a file of the U.S. Census listing all names in America by the, the degree to which they're common, and I just pick them at random from that. I say I need a common name or I need an uncommon name, and that's the part of the file I go to, but it's, it's pretty much random. It looks to me that you're influenced by Neil Stevenson, Sure, yeah, and, and lots of other writers, too, but who else, yeah. Uh, John Farley, William Gibson, Bruce Sterling, Rudy Rucker, Kathy Koja, Ursula Le Guin, I mean, any number, I mean, you know, thousands, Bradley Denton, Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury. 
But Neil Stevenson seems to be the only one who gets a reference in your novel. Oh, he gets a name check in one of my books, sure. I, uh, or one of his characters does. I mean, I lifted tons of stuff from John Barley and Bruce Sterling as well. And I've recently started writing stories uh, that have the same titles as famous science fiction stories. I've written an Enders game and an iRobot. And um, uh, next is a True Names, Jeff Dias Five, and The Man Who Sold the Moon. What is your new novel going to be about? Well, as I said, it's a novel about a world where uh, macro-capitalism collapses, but micro-entrepreneurship flourishes, and you end up with thousands and thousands of tiny little inventive businesses that combine commodity equipment in novel ways, and uh, eventually that collapses, and in the ashes of that, they start collectives, non-commercial collectives, that build museums to the work that they've done before, and they end up in all these fights about their museums. Do you think that only big companies will collapse, or nation-states will also maybe not collapse, but change their characteristics? I think that there are, that there are many states that are in, in genuine flux. I think some are moving up and some are moving down. Uh, you know, For in, example, India and Brazil and China seem to be in a state of, of great development, where they seem to be improving very rapidly. And uh, I think that other states are failing and have, the, have a real danger of failing. In particular, countries... Uh, again, this is from Bruce Sterling, but I think countries that have oil tend to be countries that are in a lot of trouble in general. If you look at um, the province in Canada that has oil, if you look at Alberta, it's the province with the least social investment and, to my mind, the least hospitable environment to its citizens. I think the problem with oil is that it's too easy to get wealth out of oil without, without having to engage in any kind of cooperative environment. As Bruce Sterling says, an oil well is a hole in the ground surrounded by men with guns. And so even when you look at some of the, the richest oil nations in the world, like um, Norway, Norway's social investment is lower than all of, its, all of the other Scandinavian nations. Right? They've got the most money and the least social investment relative to Sweden and Denmark. The system of hierarchical states, is it going to survive? Like uh, the central governments and governments of states or provinces, uh, then... Uh... So I think the rule of law will survive. So you don't think it will be like in the early Neil Stevenson novels? I think that a much deadlier dystopia than, than the one in Snow Crash is one in which um, government has been completely captured by industrial interests and regulates on behalf of industry and not on behalf of the citizenship. You think it's probable? Uh, I think that, that's, that there's a real possibility of that, but I think that technology acts as a powerful uh, countervailing force against it. And, and, you know, my day job is I work for a civil rights group mostly on issues about this and, and encouraging people and helping people organize to take this kind of activity on. But people now are organizing on a horizontal networking level. It seems that in modern informational society people don't need those strong hierarchical structures we needed in the industrial age. They may not need a strong hierarchical structure, but they need the rule of law and a social contract and a means for enforcing it. One thing I wanted to ask you about your last novel I don't even know how to put it. Uh, do you believe in real strange creatures existing in this world? No, no, no. That was that was allegory. It was, it was a fairy tale. No, I, I'm an empiricist. I don't believe in unicorns or golems or magic. Yes, uh, but I mean not unicorns, but something that doesn't exist in our picture of the world, that may exist near us, but we don't know about it. I think that cryptozoology, which is the study of, of uh -huh. rare animals or animals that might be mythical, will probably yield some dividends. Uh, you know, for example, I, I just I think that there are creatures that are weirder than we imagine, alive on Earth that we have yet to catalog. 
but I don't think that they'll have that. I don't believe in the abominable snowman or anything. But you know, has science cataloged every every organism on Earth? Of course not. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always finding new ones. There's a super colony of ants that spans the Pyrenees. So essentially, a single a single entity, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's that's pretty wild. Thank you, and good luck with your next novels and with the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation. All right. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.